This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Charter schools are public-private partnerships. They're nonprofit organizations, but they receive a lot of money from the government to operate a school and they have to be authorized by the government. So they're quasi-public institutions. They've been growing in popularity since they were first established back in 1991, and they became even more popular during the pandemic when a lot of traditional public schools shut their doors. So according to the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, about 7% of all public school students are attending charters. But the quality of a charter school education has been disputed. Some say charters are inferior, others say that charters outdo the public schools. Researchers are often saying that there's not much difference between them, but an organization at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University known as Credo has really done the best job of sitting down and comparing how much do students at charter schools learn as compared to what they would have learned had they gone to the nearby public school. And they've done that as, in as many states as they can get access to and now, just this past month, they have issued their third report on the state of charter schools nationwide. So I'm very pleased to have with me today on the Education Exchange, Credo Director Margaret Raymond, her friends call her Mackie, I'll do so today. Mackie, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, it's always nice to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Mackie, let's get into the details of how you did all of this downstream, but let's first talk about what's the bumper sticker here? Do charter school students learn more or don't they? So in the re report that we just released last week, which is called, as a matter of fact, the National Charter School Study 3, uh, our top line results are that students who are enrolled in charter schools gain more learning in the space of a, of a year in both reading and math than they would have gotten had they gone to their local traditional public schools. But you also find some variation in that. I think you find for disadvantaged groups uh, that charters are especially valuable and for more advantaged groups, they are less valuable. So what's the detail? One of the nuances of all of this kind of work is that there's always variation underneath these uh, average effects that I just described. And in fact, we do see that there's uh, a difference across charter schools in, in how students perform. Uh, we found that uh, the, the effects of attending a charter school are outsized and positive for Blacks, Hispanics, students in poverty, and even Asians uh, in, in reading. But by the same token, the, uh, the learning that charter school students get um, was not as advantageous uh, for other groups of students. And those would be Native Americans and students in special ed, and especially students who are enrolled in virtual online charter schools. And white students. And white students in math. White students in math. but So white students benefit in reading, but not in math. Is that it? They're the same in reading and same, yeah, same in reading and and less less advantaged well. in math. So uh, I'm going to get how this compares to your earlier work, uh, but before I do that, let's talk a little bit about how you do this. I know you talk about comparing them to uh, a, a virtual twin. So uh, what do you mean by the virtual twin? 
Well, one of the big challenges that uh, researchers who do charter school work uh, face, and Paul, you know this from your own work, um, is that the populations of students that enroll in district public schools and charter public schools may not be identical. And so doing a school to school comparison could be influenced by the differences in the students that enroll there. To get at that and to make sure that that doesn't happen, we've created a methodology where for each student in a charter school, we look at the district public schools that those students otherwise would have attended and find kids that are exact matches to that charter school student. And then we average what happens to those other students. And that's what is the virtual twin. So we have we essentially create a two by two twin study by having one student in a charter school, the other student complex in a district school. And they're identical in all ways, except for the fact that one of them is in charter and one of them is in a traditional school. Well, at least all ways that we can identify. Now, there might be some Fair. differences that we can't spot, and one can never get rid of that. But at least according to what we can identify, they look pretty much alike. So it sounds like a apples to apples comparison to me. That's certainly the hope. Well, so uh, now this is on state standardized tests, right? This is so the Every year, the state administers a test under the federal guidelines that all states tend to uh, try to follow. Each state has a test for students in third through eighth grade. Is that the group of students that you're looking at specifically? So our sample also includes third through eighth plus the high school tests that they are also required to administer. So we can actually see students all across the grade spans. So how do you get last year's test for the high school students? So our data ends in the year preceding the pandemic because there have been very few tests since then. As uh, many of your listeners know, in the spring of 2020, all of the state assessments across all the states were uh, suspended. And even the following year in 2021, a number of states did not come back into a full testing regime. The very first year of pretty solid, and I'm going to say pretty solid testing was 2022. And because we look at progress from one year to the next, we don't have enough data yet to be able to say what happened after the pandemic. So your data ends in, in 2018, you're saying? 19. The last school year is 2018-19, and we take the ninth spring of 2019 assessments as our final measure. And you started in 2014, so is it sort of that five-year period? 2014, exactly right. 2019? Exactly. This study covers that five-year period. Our earlier studies covered earlier years so that we have a continuous series of student tests like this from 2006 to 2019. But the results that you've just been reporting uh, to our listeners are based on this 20 to 14 to 20 to 19. Now, you just compare this year with where they were one year previously. Is that how you do it? You don't go all the way back or do you go way back for the five years. So you're looking at them now compared to five years ago. How, how does that work? We do a one year to the next analysis. And in order to meet the federal evaluation standards, 
we rematch kids at the beginning of each school year based on what their most recent test score was. So we're not able to actually get that longitudinal arc uh, that we had used in some of our earlier studies. And uh, we were encouraged by the US department to modify our methodology to rematch every period so that all we're getting is the one year effect of being in a charter school versus the kids that went to the traditional school. Yeah, it's always a trade-off. Uh, people would like to know what the long-term development is, but at the same time, uh, the uh, statisticians say, well, you can't be sure that some other stuff isn't going on there besides what's going on in the school room, and so you're making drawing conclusions when you shouldn't be. So it's always uh, a catch Well, can I let you in on a secret? I will. Our listeners are eager to have secrets. All right, so deeply embedded in our technical appendix um, is the fact that we ran the study both ways. In our earlier work, we had actually followed kids over time and had tried to keep the virtual twin intact as well. So we were actually seeing a longer arc. And so we tested what we called credo classic, the, the older methodology with this new. The results were almost identical. They differed only in like the third decimal place of a standard deviation. So the story is actually pretty robust. A lot of there's a lot of uh, a lot of controversy over uh, a decimal point uh, or uh, or something that's not worth even one decimal point. So Fair enough. So that's all fascinating. Uh, uh, now you said something about virtual schools. And you're saying that the virtual schools that you looked at, and, and you have a lot of virtual schools in your study, that that's where charters are, are falling down. Uh, you get some big negative effects of, of going to a virtual charter school. Is that correct? You're right, Paul. Um, it's, across our entire study, 6% of the students that we looked at are enrolled in a virtual online charter school. Uh, despite those small, small numbers, the learning impacts for students in those settings is so dramatically negative that it drags down the entire set of results. And so let me tell you what the virtual um, learning looks like. For a student enrolled in a virtual charter school, they get about two thirds of a year of learning in reading, and they get about one third of a year of learning in math. And that learning setback is so dramatic that if they were not part of the study, the results for the brick and mortar charter schools would more than double the top line results that I described at the top of the hour. So if you just said, we're gonna compare brick and mortar charter schools, when we're not gonna, we're gonna put those virtual schools to one side, you would be showing considerably stronger results for charter schools than you're actually reporting at present. That's a fascinating finding. Now, you know, this story that you have told before about virtual schools, and again, point out in the current uh, study, is not just virtual charters. This is also what people said about virtual education during the pandemic. Everybody said it was hardly better than nothing at all maybe slightly, but that's a sort of what you're saying here, right? It's hardly better than nothing at all. So we've been surprised at how uh, consistent these poor results have been. Uh, 
um, especially given the fact that we had already highlighted them at an earlier point and there had been time since then to actually do something about that. We don't see that that's been the case. And the real challenge here is that there are around the country, not just in the charter world, but also in the private world, there are good examples of online education. Um, it's just that that's not happening here. And it's a real challenge to, I think, the operators of those schools, but I also think it's a challenge to the community of charter schools as a whole to really call that out and, and to um, place deeper expectations on those schools because those students are being harmed. Now, I know what the virtual charter school operators are going to say in response to this. So I've heard do I. What they say is you're comparing apples to cucumbers. You're not comparing apples to apples. Anybody who is learning online is not comparable to somebody who's going to school. They're emotionally distressed or they've been bullied or they're sick or there's something in their life situation that's so dramatic that they have had to stop going to school and get and they now are getting their education online. So you're just making an unfair comparison. Now, you can't do anything about it because there's nothing in the data that's going to tell you when a kid is sick or troubled or whatever, but that's the reality. That's what they're going to say. So how do you respond to that um, defense? Okay, I have, I've, my answer has two parts. One, I would like to point out that the excuse of the month has changed over the years. And it's always, oh, we shouldn't be held accountable because our students are, insert adjective here. And that, that adjective has changed over time. And so it's been that these students are cognitively not the same. It's that they have different learning styles. It's that they have been bullied. It's that they now have trauma. You, you can insert whatever blaming the student adjective you want. My answer has been the same consistently. I'm open to the idea that you may genuinely be educating a completely different population, but you can't just use that as an excuse. You've got to actually demonstrate it. That's my first answer. The second answer is you're a charter school. Your job is to create creative and effective learning environments for the students that you have. And so I frankly don't care whether your kids are X, Y, Z, or striped. Your job is to modify the approach that you have so that your kids are successful. And you need to demonstrate that, you've do that you can do that. And so far, that hasn't been the case. That's the second answer. Well, Maggie, you have talked a lot about the fact that this is the third study, and you're, you had one about, it must be 20 years ago was your first one, and then about 10 years ago was your second. I got the number slightly off, I'm sure, but... Thanks for aging me here, Paul. So how do you, how have your studies changed over time? And I'm not talking about how you did the study so much as I'm, I'm asking you, how are your findings changing? Is the charter sector changing or is it look exactly today as it did when you first did your analyses uh, when, when Credo began? Uh, we, we've certainly seen a, a, a big transformation in the results that we were able to report. Um, our first report was published in 2009 and uh, the answer then was that charter schools were not producing equivalent learning. They, their learning was actually less than what students could have gotten if they'd gone to the school down the street. Um, and that was a big surprise to a lot of people. 
Um, I can remember then. the New York Times made that headlines. That was a headline story in the New York Times. Charter schools are not as good as your neighborhood public school. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There, there was a lot of hay made out of that result by a lot of people who oppose charter schools. Um, the next time we did the study in 2013, we actually saw that charter schools were getting better. We saw that they had improved in both subjects in terms of how much learning they produced for their students. And those results were a little bit positive in reading and about the same as district schools um, in math. But both of those represented progress from the earlier results. We just didn't know at that point where it was going to go from here, from there. And so in, in many ways, we've been waiting anxiously for the next set of results because if they had just dropped off or if, they, if they'd evened off, then that was about as good as it was going to get. But these results, because they're positive in both subjects, they indicate that there has been an improvement trend over the period of our studies. And we've been able to test that that's not because they're enrolling more advantaged kids. That's not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. Um, and it's not because new, better schools are coming online because that's not the case. The schools that are coming online are not as strong as the existing schools. So it's the existing schools getting better over time. This incremental improvement of continuous improvement model, you can see the trajectory of, of individual schools and charter management organizations improving year over year, over year, over year. Yeah, well, that, that's consistent with some of the material that I have studied when we've looked mm -hmm. at data and we've seen a steady improvement in the charter sector relative to the district sector uh, over time. And, but we sort of speculated that it might be because they were closing down the weak charter schools. Some studies in particular states had indicated that might be the case, but you're suggesting that that's probably not the explanation. So I can tell you that over the five-year period of this study, there were about 200 schools closed that we can observe in the data. That's a very small fraction of all of the schools. And while the percentage of charter schools that are doing worse than their local schools is shrinking and closure has a little bit to do with that, the real driver of that um, declining percentage doing worse than the local option is really because the individual schools themselves are getting better. So closure is a valuable tool for authorizers to have, but I think the more valuable tool is the incentives that push people in school, the adult teams in schools to get better. Well, there are two kinds of incentives out there. One is authorizers. Authorizers say they'll shut down a school if they don't see uh, students uh, in, uh, learning at it. And they look at these test scores to decide whether or not kids are learning among other factors. And secondly, uh, the other explanation is parents aren't going to send their kids to a school that's not doing very well. So which do you think it is? Is it the parents, the fact that parents can walk out the door anytime their child's not learning and schools know that, uh, or is it that they fear the authorizers? So parents pick schools for lots of different reasons. And the academic piece of that is increasing in importance for, for parents. And certainly the polling data has shown that that's a more important factor after the pandemic than ever before. But I don't think that that's the only reason that pick, parents pick schools. And so I think the parent turnover and student turnover rates are not the driver of these improvements. 
I think it's the threat that authorizers impose on schools. And it's not just a threat of closure. It's that you have to stand for review every few years. And that creates a posture of uh, what we call the culture to adapt within these schools. And so they're constantly tinkering from, from the moment they get their charter until they prove in again for a renewal. They're, they have the incentive to just try to get better each time they, they have an opportunity to do so. Well, you're finding a difference between charter management organization schools, that is to say schools are a part of a network that belong under the control of one larger operation and sort of standalone schools where moms and pops get together and they come up with their own school and it's a great school perhaps or a bad school perhaps, but it's all it's just on its own. And you're saying the network schools are outperforming the standalone schools. Is that, have I got that right? You are correct. The learning that students uh, uh, realize when they're enrolled in charter management organizations or network affiliated charter schools is larger than what we find for standalone. Although the standalone schools do well in reading, um, they are no different in the learning that they produce in math, but I would put a pin in that because a large number of the virtual charter schools are themselves standalone. And so I think that's the place where the the, the bulk of that impact of the negative results in math for virtual schools actually comes home to roost. Okay, so I'm going to press a little bit because let's put those virtual schools outside and stick them in the kitchen because yeah, we, we've talked about it. Let's get rid of them. If you just mm -hmm. the standalones that are brick and mortar and compare oh. to the CMOs that are brick and mortar, what's the story there? Is there any difference really between the standalones and the, and the CM, CMO charters? Unfortunately, we didn't do that breakout, so I really can't answer that. Okay, well, so give us a follow-up report on that. It's it's sort of an interesting point because then you want to know why would it? What is it about those those charter management organization schools? Are they benefiting from being part of a larger partnership and and they get advice, they share it among themselves? Is that what you're getting out of being a part of the network? Yeah. So what we've been able to show. Um, from these studies and from a, 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 another little look that we've had at CMOs over time, um, it's replicating an existing school is actually easier than a full-fledged startup from scratch. I think that that's logically very consistent. The Chinese um, have learned that, by the way. Yes, they have. Good point. <laughs> Learning um, from what they're doing on the other side and, and trying to make improvements on that, that's a very... Uh, quick and a quick and dirty way to get to to where you want to be. So um, the fact that there are lots of organizations around the country that are encouraging high performing charter schools to replicate creates a subset of uh, capable schools that are doing the replication. And what's what's interesting for us is that they demonstrate that they are in fact able to replicate the quality that they had in the original school that as they scale, their quality does not diminish. Their new schools come on still strong and outperforming district schools. And in fact, some of those are so strong that they actually outperform most of the other charter schools. So that whole model of finding successful charter schools and encouraging them to replicate is a way of building additional quality opportunities for kids across the country. Well, you know, one of the commentators on your study said something to the effect that 
well, those uh, charter management networks, they go hunt around for a very good standalone school, and then they ask it to replicate, and they give it some money to replicate. So in a way, it's the the, the philanthropic community that's driving this uh, this finding of yours that they're they're asking the good schools to expand. It, do you do you agree with that interpretation? Well, I'm not sure that I would say that it was a philanthropy-driven phenomenon because you can look at which organizations are the ones chosen by those philanthropy interests, and they only account for about a quarter of all of the CMOs that grow and do well. So I think that there's actually something more inherent in the drive to mission that a lot of these schools hold that says, uh, yes, we're doing really well in one school, but think about all the other students that we could be serving if we had two schools or if we had more than two schools. So I'm not, I'm not assigning philanthropy the sort of the, the golden egg here because I think that's actually, it, it actually resides in the leadership of these successful schools. Yeah, yeah, I sort of am inclined to that uh, perspective uh, myself, Mackie. So uh, tell me about your comparison of students with disabilities. You're saying that students with disabilities don't do as well if they go to a charter. And I can see that, that that's a possibility because our, our traditional public schools now have pretty elaborate services for the vast array of people who do have disabilities. And there's so many different kinds of disabilities that in order to serve all of them takes resources that may not be available to our charter schools. So I can see that, but uh, other people would say, yeah, but it's really hard to do this virtual twin analysis in the special ed uh, world just because it's so complicated. Uh, so do you take any special I mean, how do you handle that, uh, that research problem? So this is a place where you're absolutely right. Um, the categories of students and their needs that are covered by the umbrella of special education services is vast. Um, we do not include the students with profound and um, multiple diagnoses. So these are the low incidence, really high need kids because there aren't any in charter schools. They simply, by the time they've gotten their service agreement in place and it's working well for a student, they're not gonna move. And, and frankly, they don't have any reason to do that. Charter schools don't refer kids as frequently for assessment and assignment to services. They try to keep kids more undiagnosed, unassigned, and mainstreamed than would happen in a district school. So of course, the students that are special education that they do serve are going to be in a sort of middling category. I'm not sure that I, I totally understand or agree with that. On the other hand, if that's true, they're getting the, the possible match of students that are worse off in terms of their needs. They have higher needs, than the students in, in the charter school. And so that would work in favor of the charter schools. And that's not what we're seeing. So what we're seeing is consistently, and this isn't just in this study, it's actually a consistent finding across the work, is that students who are enrolled in charter schools who are identified as needing special education services are not making as much academic progress in a year's time as they would have if they'd gone to the district schools. And 
that that finding is so consistent and so pervasive that we've called it out in every single study that we've done. And we're calling it out again as something that is really holding, you know, it, it, it's holding the uh, overall reputation of the charter sector um, a little bit at risk. So uh, I should have asked you this question long ago, but how many states do you have information from? How many states do you have this uh, comparison between the charter and the virtual twin? So we have uh, what are called data sharing agreements with uh, 29 states plus the District of Columbia. And in New York State, we separate out New York City as and treat it as though it's a state, because if we didn't, it would swamp the rest of the state and we wouldn't be able to make any comparisons about that. We think of New York City as a very different education environment than upstate. So we have 31 jurisdictions that we treat as states for all of this work. And we've been partnering with these states for as many as, some of them as many as 20 years. So that you have 29 states plus New York City and District of Columbia. And you're, now there, there are five states, I think, that have don't have charter schools, so you can't do much there. And there's probably some other states that have hardly any. Uh, but uh, so I'm going to ask you the uh, the nasty question: Why do you only have 29 instead of you know 44 or you know over 40? Fixed costs, Paul. Well, I I don't know what that means because you've been able to absorb all the fixed costs to get to 29. What? How about the rest? As, as some states just don't want to be uh, studied. Is that it? Um, well. The larger answer to your question is that a lot of these states don't have enough charter schools to be able to do a robust study about them. And so if there's only a handful of charter schools in a state, um, we're not actually able to provide reliable statistics about them. That's our first thing. Can we, can we do the work and have the work have integrity? Beyond that, it is a phenomenally complicated and expensive um, exercise to reach agreements with these states to be able to use their data and to include them in studies. And the extent of which, the extent to which those resources um, are leading to positive results is much less certain in the states that are not in our, in our study. We have very, very low numbers of charter schools in, in these schools, in these states. Um, and so we're, we're concerned about the, you know, we have 92%, I think, of, of all the charter schools in our study. So the amount of effort and resources to go and close that out just didn't seem like it was worth it. Okay, so you've got 29 states, but you've got 92% of yeah. all charter school students. That's, that, that's good to know. So, um, you know, you didn't have to find that you were going to have improvement in the charter sector. You could argue that as a sector grows, it's going to weaken, that it starts off, it, it's sort of like a really fine restaurant that all of a sudden becomes a chain. And as it becomes a chain, you know, nobody, who wants to go? So definitely you could have imagined that over the last 10 years, there has been a weakening of this sector as it has become larger and more subjected to the usual ossification that takes place as things get bigger and more complicated. So why do you think 
he didn't see that development? Well, so it's a really great question, Paul, because, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, at the end of the second study, we had two data points and that third data point could have been anywhere, right? We, we could have seen it be as strong as it is, or it could have gone right back down to where it was the first study. We just had no idea what to expect. And many of the things that you mentioned about, you know, sort of as you increase in volume, you decrease in quality, um, were, were active concerns of ours. I would say, however, that the, um, the conversation about quality um, has become much more embedded in authorizers across the country, in charter management organizations, in Board, charter school boards, that they are really much more focused in these last years that we're looking at than ever before on how well students are learning. And so I have to say, I think that there is a, there is a organizational maturity that we're seeing within the organizations that make up the charter school movement, schools on the one hand and authorizers on the other, where they're both all very much focused on, it's about student learning. That's the job. And so how are we doing? Well, thank you very much, Mackie, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Margaret Raymond. She's the director of Credo at this, the Stanford Center for Research on Educational Outcomes. That's what Credo stands for. It's at, located at Stanford University and housed at the Hoover Institution. It's written a series of reports on student learning, and its latest study is entitled, A Matter of Fact. So thank you all for joining me on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me for a new podcast, which is released every Monday at noon Eastern time on the Education Next website.